0: welcome to Connections. I'm Mike Tom with Colleen Hood.
1: Helene Berger and her husband, AD were married for over 50 years, but the last few years of their marriage presented challenges after a devastating diagnosis.
0: But Helene decided to face that devastation with joy, and that choice has inspired people all across North America.
1: We'll talk with Helene and choosing joy on Connections. Helene and Adie Berger spent five decades happily married, but the last few years of their marriage placed challenges in front of them. Helene, tell us what happened.
2: Uh, it was shortly after our 50th anniversary uh, that uh, my husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And when when he was diagnosed and the doctor turned to him, he said, how do you feel? And Adie said, I don't want to live anymore. And for the first year... We went down the typical path that most Alzheimer's patients do, you know, a little stubborn and rigid and annoyed and never violent, thank goodness. And, um, it, but after about the first year, and i, I no, none of us know how to handle this. You know, we, we know it's there because we go for testing, and we're not surprised, but it's always a shock, and none of us seems to we prepare ourselves for all kinds of things in life but we don't prepare ourselves for this. And the first year, he went down the typical path. And then, in the second year, as I began to learn techniques and, and how, to, how to deal with it, um, we together we learned. He started becoming known as a man with a radiant smile, and he started doing all kinds of uh, things that were unthinkable earlier. And I'm gonna jump fast forward to the last night of his life, unexpectedly, he was healthy. He was fine, and it was a sh- that was really a shock. And we took seventeen friends out for dinner. And at that dinner, I didn't even tell him who was coming because I didn't want to put pressure on him to try to remember who the names. And he greeted every one of those friends by name. It was a wow. And as typical of the progress he was making. And then he sits down, and oh, he doesn't sit down. He he fractured his hip two and a half years before he passed away, and he was and still in a wheelchair. And he's in his wheelchair, and he raises his glass to make a toast, water he never drank. And he makes the most articulate, profound toast, thanking their friends for their attention, for their calls, for their time, for taking care of me. And when we left that dinner, two of our really close friends came over and said the identical words, are you sure he has Alzheimer's? And that's what the book is about, why we were able to make this unfathomable progress.
0: So, how did you come about to become an author?
2: As, during those years, in order for him to get to, I don't want to live anymore, to being almost whole, I started making little notes to myself, never dreaming of about a book. And mostly, my husband loved classical music, and we went to a lot, a lot, a lot of concerts. And uh, mostly they were they started out on, I would go to a concert and look for a blank page in a program in case I had a thought, in case I wanted to write something to jot down. And then I got smart enough to take those little Moleskine notebooks with me. And towards the end, so many friends who saw this progress unbelievable progress in so many ways uh they started coming to me as, as well what was working what was i doing and what medication was, he was on and it certainly was not medication that made the difference he was on the standard stuff that everybody's on but it was how we how we worked things out together and how and how he was treated and you know i i always think that uh we never know. We never know the strength that we have, but God comes along and gives us strength we never knew we had.
0: Yeah. And, Can yeah. you describe those first moments of when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's? The doctor says this is what it is. What what went through your mind and what was that moment like?
2: It's a combination of I knew it unquestionably and shock at the same time. It's difficult to describe. But it, it comes to think of it in the book. I write about in in a couple of years before how I knew in one part of my brain and started to make appropriate plans for for, uh, giving other people helping me with finances and other things, but never admitting to myself that it was true because we hope against hope that it's just age, it's just this, but some of my brain was two separate at the same time making the plans uh, recognizing what what's coming down the pike and denying it at the same time and one of the things in the book is an accept, a, a whole chapter on acceptance and how none of us in life uh, can move on and, until we accept the reality of life.
1: And Helene, once you did accept it, how did you manage to get through this journey? I.
2: <laughs> the reality is yes it was the reality is we were making such progress, and I saw the, the positive changes that I really didn't realize until I was writing the book how difficult it was. And I, I, I was writing these things, and I said, did I do that? Did we do that? But the um, uh, there was one thing I do want to say up front that I must say every time I speak, and that is the important caveat that this was unique. This was rare, and I don't want for one second to have people think that uh, if they follow the, the methodology and the guidance and things that I do, that they're going to walk off into the sunset and it's going to be fine. It's not. Hundreds of thousands of, of wonderful people who have given their soul to a maid or to whoever they're caregiving for and ended up with somebody who doesn't know their name and, um, and, and sometimes someone who's violent. So, this is no guarantee, but it's it's a lesson in it's a lesson in life and the other thing that's so important to me and is uh, uh, the book has only been out since May tenth but the people who've read it all come away with the same vision, and that is this is clearly not for alzheimer's alone, but this is this is how we This is how we treat anyone in our lives who we love, who we care about, who is declining in any way, and even the people that are not declining. A daughter of a friend of mine, after reading the book, wrote me this beautiful letter, and she said, I want you to know how universal this book is. I am speaking to my husband now differently than I ever spoke to him before because of your book. And that was like... the best compliment I, I could have gotten because it, it is totally universal. I wrote about Alzheimer's because that was my experience, but um, but it, it's, it has touched so many people.
0: Yeah, I'm just reading a review on Amazon right now, and a, one person wrote, my mom is a transplant recipient, and I discovered that choosing joy crosses over to any illness. Yeah, thank you,
2: thank you. I, I, was, I have no idea who that person was, and I keep getting... Uh, I keep getting things like that, and from people I do know with the notes. are I mean, it's really it's helping people in their lives. And, And one of the things that I that I did do in the book that I think is unique is that when I found something that was working for us, I didn't say, "Oh, that's good to do in that situation." I tried so hard to find what was the what was the philosophy it that made it work so it could apply it to other situations and for example uh, we had a wonderful a wonderful housekeeper who came in three days a week who was with us for 15 years and who adored him because he was he was easy to adore and um, when when he came uh, it was actually when we came back from the hospital after the hip surgery that I needed I needed more help because I couldn't handle it but I remember one morning being in the bedroom when she came in, her name is Lucetta, and she's around the books. I learned so much from her. And had she said, with a cheery voice, Mr. Berger, your breakfast is ready, I would have thought, that's lovely. She never did that. She came in and said, Mr. Berger, are you ready for breakfast? And my jaw dropped at the brilliance of it. No matter how sweetly you say it, your breakfast is ready is an implied command. You've got to come and eat now. Asking him is his choice, and he would say yes. And I applied that from that moment on to every single thing we did, no matter how trivial. It was not, we're going to the doctor, you better go to the bathroom now. It was would you like to go to the bathroom before we get in the car to go to the park? Would you like Would you like to play Don't after dinner. Would you like to draw? Would you like this movie or that movie? And the the difference is so profound because any people, whatever their life is, whether they they are an expert in what they do, even even just cutting, uh collecting garbage, people have expertise and they're used to knowing what they want and making decisions. And when you take a grown woman or man and start telling them every minute of the day what they have to do, of course there's rebellion, of course there's anger. And there's so many examples through the book of how, how I learned to handle things, and that, that was probably one of the most profound things, to include him in every decision that was made. And he was a part of it, and when you're a part of it, it's your choice. And you're not rebelling because it's it's your idea.
1: With all of those emotions that you were dealing with throughout this journey, how did you manage in the end to choose joy specifically?
2: He, because of him. Because he responded so beautifully. And, and, and every day, instead of failure, every day there was improvement. He, he began, he used to play the piano beautifully. And for three years, he had stopped. And one day I said, Honey, you, you love the piano. Why why aren't you playing anymore? I can't. Why? My fingers don't work anymore. And I said, Honey, would, would you give me ten minutes a day? Okay. And within a month, he was playing an hour every day, Bach and uh, and Mozart and Rachmaninoff and Beethoven, and beaming at the piano. And it... it I didn't have to choose George. Joy came to me. I was so proud of him. At one point in the book, I said when my granddaughter asked a question, do you still love him? And I I wrote different letters at at different times. And the reality is that we had, you know, every every marriage has problems in the beginning. (laughs) Everyone. And, you know, we worked through our problems early on. And we learned how to deal with them together. And the reality is it became a very good marriage, but I really felt that my love was stronger for him during those years than, than ever in ever our marriage because I had such respect for the way he reacted, the way he handled it, the way he worked with me and what we worked out. Many problems along the way. It's not a piece of cake, let me tell you. Um, but but we were able to work it out together because basically we we cared. And it was,
1: How did you manage to find uh, that balance? So you're giving your all so that you can become his caregiver, but you're also um, fulfilling your needs as well. How did you find that, that balance? That is
2: such an excellent question, and that was very difficult for me. I was blessed to take him before he was diagnosed to a wonderful psychiatrist to know what direction to go in. How the first thing she did is say, you know, he's got to be diagnosed. I don't know if this is emotional or physical uh, or, or, you know, something. And I, I continued to see her, and she absolutely encouraged me to, to take care of myself. And she warned me over and over again that if you don't, give yourself alone time and give yourself a life, a life in some small ways, that it's not going to be good for you and it definitely will not be good for your husband. And so I was very, very blessed to have that guidance and in the beginning. And it wasn't often. It was an hour a day. Or I would get out and play tennis or, or, or take a walk and or, or occasionally go to theater because he could no longer do that with a friend. Concerts he went to with me always. He loves them. Uh, but it was so vital to me. And then when I came back, at home, to home, uh, I, I felt fulfilled, and I I, I gave them my all. And my advice to women or men: you cannot, cannot, cannot do this 24/7. You you'll you'll fade faster than the one you're taking care of. And it doesn't have to be uh, a trained person who has all kinds of papers and degrees. It can be. A high school student or a college student uh, who would come and play cards or chess or or, or, or games or take a walk, something to give you a relief, and it is vital to your own sanity. And and I I realized way later that his greatest progress, amazingly, was after he fractured his hip. Why? Why? because i was blessed to be able to have not not in the nighttime, but in the daytime help and if i could get an hour or two to myself just to live and to and to you know get some exercise that's when he made his greatest progress because when i came home i i was totally devoted to him you cannot be devoted 24 hours a day it's you it's just it's too wearing and too difficult and and i was I was so blessed because he was improving.
0: Helene, over the years, what was the biggest lesson you learned through all of this?
2: The most important lesson learned is truly that how we respond to our loved one, to our mate, to whoever we're caregiving for, makes all the difference in the world. Alzheimer's patients typically uh, don't remember and they ask you the same question four, five, six times. And in the beginning, I did what everybody does I said, sweetly, sweetheart, I'm going to the ballet with Elaine tonight, and by the third or fourth time, I did what everyone does, just a sigh before I said it again, or raising the shoulder, or some nonverbal sign that, I've told you this a thousand times, why can't you remember? And I would see it as a punch in the gut to him, and i I, one night I said, I'm not going to do that to him. He doesn't deserve that. And if it's the tenth time, I'll answer as sweetly as I did the first. And that was one of the hardest things that I had to do. Uh, because, you know, you want to scream. <laughs> and it it what happened is it happened less and less because when I would say it sweetly, he would say, oh, yeah. went to the concert at his ballet, and I looked for the blank page, and I wrote down, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then I, later on, a few weeks later, I developed a mantra for myself. And the mantra was, if he remembered, he wouldn't be asking. How could he be angry at him? Because he doesn't remember, and it, it, that, that helped me. But he was so sensitive to my mood and my frustration and my anxiety, and I tried so hard, so, so hard uh, not to not to express that to him the other thing was an active mind an active mind and, and 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 we just have to know that we're we do have the power to make a difference that the attitude that we convey um, makes all the difference and most patients are fully aware of, of their decline and naturally fear the loss of respect and dignity from their family and friends and I'm hoping if you want the bottom line I'm really hoping that choosing joy offers suggestions that we're we are not the hapless victims of a cruel cool fate that we can we actually can make a difference and we can choose to live with joy and if we're lucky and blessed by by God in life we we can we can truly make a difference
1: Where can people find the book?
2: Uh, They find it on uh, Amazon, of course, dot com.
0: Well, thanks so much for sharing your story with us and opening up and writing Choosing Joy. I know it's going to make a big impact on other people still as well. It's
2: very exciting. Something I never, ever, ever envisioned at this stage of my life, but I feel
0: very blessed. And a great way to see something good coming out of a difficult situation as well, right?
1: Well said.
0: Yeah, it's such a great conversation with Helene. Again, the name of the book is Choosing Joy, and you can find it online.
1: We'll talk to you again on Connections.